in the grand scheme of things, they don't matter that much. You know, we conduct our worship services, if you've been with us during our 930 hour, a particular way. And we put thought into that, and we have reasons for doing that. And we do it because we think it's the best way to do it. But other people do that differently. And I'm not all that mad about that. I don't get all that buzzed up about that. Um, I'll be happy to tell you I've actually done some series on why we do things the way we do and so on. I teach in our newcomers orientation some of the principles that we apply to why we do things the way we do in our worship services. But there are differences like that. So some differences are of that variety. They're less important. Perhaps not very important at all in terms of differences. Then I need, And so some people take the approach that says these things don't matter. Stuff like that doesn't matter much. But then you got other differences that are a really big deal. You guys have read in the papers over the last many years of denominations doing things like ordaining uh, avowed and open homosexuals to ministry, right? You heard of that? I think most of us will probably agree that, agree that matters. That's a denial of something directly forbidden in Scripture. And here you got people uh, condoning and ordaining folks to ministry who fit into that category. So there's, on the one end, there's smaller stuff. On the other end, there's really big stuff. To put it another way, you've got churches, denominations that fit into a category called liberal. Now, sometimes we use the word liberal in a political sense, and uh, but I'm using this in a theological sense, in a, in a doctrinal sense, liberal. And what do we mean by liberal? Well, liberal means, uh, the word is, is pretty serious. It means that you have denied one or more cardinal, principle, first order doctrines of Christianity. If you do that, you're liberal. And that's a bad word. It means, for instance, that you deny things like the Bible is without error. You say the Bible has errors. If you say the Bible has errors, then you've denied a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith that is the Bible is a revelation from God, inspired by him, and a corollary of inspiration is if it came from God, it's without error. So if you deny that it is without error, if you say it is errant, then you are, you are liberal. And that's a serious matter. And then if you deny that, of course, there'll be other things that flow from that. This is how some of these denominations get to the point of ordaining homosexuals to ministry. Because once you have denied the absolute veracity of the foundation, the source, the scriptures, well, now you can, and many do, basically make it up. Whatever the culture is telling us at the time is, is what we do. And so that's one end. Those are, I think we would all agree, very important issues. And there are denominations that are represented by these liberal, denying cardinal first order doctrines of the faith that need to be labeled as such. And then you got these smaller matters and also manner of stuff in between. And so one approach that most of us, many people take and most of us would like to take is, you know, I wish we could just all do the Rodney King approach. You guys remember the Rodney King thing? And he said, can't we just all get along? Can't we just stop bickering and all get along? Did I say something you didn't like, Tom? And you, Tom just cuts me off when, whenever I say something he doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, okay. You want my words to show up on the recording now? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
So what many of us would like to do, and frankly, I would like to do, I'd like to just say, you know, can't we just all hold hands and love Jesus and, and get along? But there are issues that are very serious, there are issues that are minor, and then there are issues that are in between. How do you sort through all of that? And so over the next couple of weeks, I want to spend some time talking about that. And I want to spend some time illustrating that with a couple of issues that are not first-order doctrines. Those are easy. You know, the liberal thing, none of us have problems with, right? It's the stuff in between. It's not the stuff that denies the faith. We don't have a problem with that. And it's not the little small stuff over here. It's the stuff in between. Yeah, that's kind of big. How big is that? Why do we consider that a big deal and, and other things less so? That's what I'd like to talk about. I'd like to use a couple of issues to illustrate it for us over the next couple of, couple of weeks together. You know, Jesus affirmed that, indeed, there are things that are more important than others when it comes to doctrine. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus was doing what he did often in his earthly ministry. He was castigating his opponents, the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 23, you will find Jesus saying several times, Woe to you, Pharisees. If you remember reading that, he says, Woe to you several times. And he tells them, You are like graves. Open graves that have been painted white on the outside, but on the inside you're, you know, you have decay and rot. Uh, he calls them a brood of vipers. So sometimes, you know, people hear preacher types say things from time to time to warn you, and, and every now and then you mention a name, and people go, you know, preachers shouldn't do that. Well, then Jesus failed the test. Because he was often pointing out error, especially when it was serious error. But in the midst of that, in Matthew 23, Jesus says to them, You, Pharisees, tithe. That is, you give of your money, you tithe, on the smallest herbs, mint, dill, and cumin. Do you remember that? He says, so you're, you're very meticulous about trying to keep these very minute matters of the law. The smallest details. He says, you should have done this, but, he says there, you have neglected, and here's the phrase, the weightier matters of the law. Now, when Jesus uses a phrase like that, the weightier matters of the law, what's he implying? That implies that there are some things that are more important than others, some things that are more weighty, some things that are more significant than others. And so one approach that Christians have taken is to just say, can't we all get along? Let's just hold hands. We're all going to heaven. Don't worry about any of this. Another approach is to say everything is equally important. Everything's important. Everything's a matter of life and death, heaven or hell, you know, eternity with God or eternity with Satan. And those are your two extremes. And Jesus says there are weightier matters and there are lesser matters. Now, how do you determine which is which? Well, one certainly weightier category of matters is things that pertain to the Christian faith. The faith, the Bible calls it. In Jude, verse 3, Jude, verse 3, you say, what chapter? Jude only has one chapter. So it's Jude, verse 3. And in Jude, verse number 3, Jude says, we need to, and this is a quote, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So there Jude is talking about then these things that are matters of the faith, the body of belief. That's what faith means in your New Testament. Same word, faith and belief. These things that are Christian belief. And we must earnestly contend. Contend means strive for. 
and strive against those who would deny them. And this is the belief system, the body of doctrine, the body of truth that's been once for all delivered to the saints, says Jude 3. So that's one category. But then you've got this category of things that aren't those. If you're wrong about them, you're not going to go to hell. If you're wrong about them, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You can be a Christian and be wrong about these things. But are they important? And so let me give you some issues like that. One would be the way we view what's going to happen on the end times, at the end. Now, some of you may say, I didn't know there was any differing views about that. Believe me, there's a bunch of differing views about that. And it can confuse you to high heaven. I mean, it can. And so I'm not going to try to confuse you to high heaven. I'm simply going to point out to you that there are these different views. I'll describe a few of them. And then I'll try to give you a way to determine whether or not these are really important, how important these are. Okay? So one issue is how do we view what the Bible teaches about the end when Jesus is going to return and he sets up his kingdom and all of that? How important is that? Another category that I want to deal with in these next couple of weeks is how we view spiritual gifts. How do we view spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues? You guys familiar with that? You at least know what the phrase is? That's something some churches do. If you've been here for any length of time, we speak in tongues, English. That's it. So we got one tongue going. But other churches speak in tongues, and in speaking in tongues, it means they speak in, and very often it's language is not understood by those that are there. How big a deal is that? Why does that happen? Okay, it does happen. Is it a big deal? So things that relate to end time sorts of issues, how big of a deal is that? Things that relate to how you view gifts, how big of a deal is that? How should we view our friends, and I say friends, who are Christians? You're not a Christian if you're wrong about these things, or not a non-Christian if you're wrong about these things. If I'm wrong about them, it won't affect my Christianity. If you're wrong about them, it won't affect you going to heaven. Does that mean it doesn't matter? So I'd like to deal with the first of those this week and maybe in the next, and over these next three weeks we'll deal with both of them, okay? First one is these end times issues. Now here's what I mean by end times issues and some of the differences that folks have. I'll go through uh, the three major positions on this thing uh, quickly, and you don't, there'll be no test, you don't have to memorize this. But they have to do with whether or not you believe that Christ is going to come and set up a kingdom on earth. And if you believe that, when he's going to do that? So is he going to come and set up a kingdom on earth? And if that, if you do believe that, when's that going to happen? Now, as I'll try to show you, I do believe that Christ is going to come and set up his kingdom on earth. And I believe that he's going to have a thousand-year kingdom. I believe the Bible teaches that. And so, those of us who believe that Christ is going to return and set up a thousand-year kingdom, here's what we're called. Well, we're called a lot of things, but here's, here's the name of the position. 
thousand year is millennium. And if you believe Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom for a millennium, a thousand years, then he comes before the millennium, before the thousand years, pre-millennium, pre-thousand years, or to put it another way, pre-millennial. So those who believe, like I do, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come and set up a thousand-year kingdom on earth, and he's going to come first, and he's going to establish it and reign over it, beforehand, are called pre-millennial. Now, that's one position. That's the position I think the Bible teaches. That's what our church believes. But there are folks who disagree. There are folks who say, no, Christ is not going to come and set up the, uh, the millennium uh, and, and the thousand-year kingdom prior to that happening, but rather, when Jesus comes, the kingdom will already be here. The kingdom will already have been ushered in because the gospel and the advance of the church will spread triumphantly throughout God's world. And when Jesus comes, the kingdom will be here. Now, that's not pre-then millennial. What would that be? He's coming after, so that's called post-millennial. And so you got pre-millennial, you got post-millennial. And many people just say, dude, I don't know my pre and my post from post-toasties. <laughs> it's just too confusing. But just try to stay with it. And here's the other third position, and that is that there just ain't going to be a millennium at all. No millennium. No thousand-year kingdom. Jesus will return, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that will be the end. So he will not return and reign over this millennial kingdom for a thousand years, but he will return and he will reign over what we commonly call heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. So there's no millennium. Now, somebody who believes in no God is called a, uh, somebody who believes in God is called a theist. Somebody who doesn't believe in God is called an atheist, no God. So what does a no millennium person, what would you call them? An millennialist. It's just millennial with an A in front of it. And what it means is no millennium. So here you got these three positions, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial. Now, how big a deal is that? And how would you decide if that's a big deal? Well, I told you what I believe. I believe that the Bible teaches a pre-millennial position. The Lord is going to return. He's going to establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and then we'll have a new heaven and a new earth and what we call heaven. But who cares? How big of a deal is it? Well, um, it does, it would, in my view, touch on some important issues. That issue by itself, if it weren't attached to other things, wouldn't matter that much because the truth is we'll all find out when he comes, right? Chances are none of us are going to live long enough for that to happen, but the Lord could, the Lord could return any time. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, just to confuse things further. <laughs> we'll put that aside for a moment. But, you know, we'll be, we'll be with the Lord when we die. We go to be with the Lord. And how he returns, you know, he'll figure that out. And all of our brothers and sisters will be together, whether they were pre or post or, or ah, right? 
So it doesn't matter. But, but I do think it touches on some larger matters. The issue itself, I would agree with that. Hey, we'll know when the Lord returns. But is it connected to anything larger? And that is how, for me, I determine which things are weightier matters. There are the things that pertain to the Christian faith, apart from which you cannot be a Christian. We all agree those are weighty matters. But then, does a matter touch on issues of first-order importance to the Christian faith? And there's a sense in which this does, in my view. Now how? Here's how. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. I couldn't find my Bible momentarily, so I was going to say, if you have your Bible, let me borrow it. (laughs) Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verse 1. And here's the calling of, of Abraham. Verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now he says, go to the land, God does, in what, this is called the Abrahamic covenant. God makes this agreement with Abraham. Calls him and says, this is what's going to happen. And this is going to happen, Abraham, quite notice, I'm going to do this. Do you notice how many times God says, I will? So what if Abraham turns out to be a bad guy? Is God still going to do this? When God says, I will, guess what? (laughs) So this is not only a covenant with Abraham, it's what's called an unconditional covenant with Abraham. It's important. It's not conditioned on Abraham. It's not conditioned on what Abraham does. I am going to make sure this happens. And I am going to settle you in a land that I am going to show you. And you know the story as you move forward, that Abraham obeys God, he moves forward, he goes to he goes to the land, he inhabits the land that we call Palestine, or the Holy Land, or Israel. And God even gives them the, the markers of how far this land is that I'm bequeathing to you, that I'm giving to you. Look at chapter 15. In verse 17, in fact, if you look just above, if you have an NIV like I do, just above where chapter 15 starts, just above verse 1, it says, God's covenant with Abram. You guys see that? So this is now in chapter 15, God ratifying this covenant that goes back to chapter 12. And God goes through a ceremony to, on solemn oath, I mean, this is God, in effect, swearing on oath that this is going to happen. Verse 17. 
And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. These are pieces of flesh that God had cut up to ratify this covenant. A sacrifice offered to show how serious this is. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and then describes other inhabitants of the land. So go to the land that I'm going to show you. What land? This land. Where's this land marked off? The river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. Now. When you say the river of Egypt, you just, have, you just say the river of Egypt. It's because people will know what that river is. You guys know what the river of Egypt? You probably know one river in Egypt, don't you? And so do I. That's the Nile. The river Euphrates to the Nile. Now, where's the river Euphrates? Well, the river Euphrates is, uh, goes through modern-day Iraq. Did you know when our our forces went north from Kuwait into Iraq and they took all their uh, all of their uh, battalions and they took all of their motorcades through there that they were passing through Babylon and that the green zone as it's called is set up right around the river Euphrates So this is a large tract of of land and most important, it's a tract of land that has never been inhabited by God's, by God's people. So that raises a question. If God makes an unconditional covenant that says, I will do this, and it hasn't happened yet, then does God have to make good on that? Does that have to happen? And if it doesn't happen... That touches on something really important, doesn't it? Namely, the trustworthiness of God. So the reason I say, and I want to explore this further with you, but the reason I say that these are issues that touch upon larger issues. In this case, the faithfulness of God to the covenant that he made with his people. So the question then is when, if if you haven't had the land, when are you going to have the land? And the answer to that, as I understand the Bible, is in the millennium. That God is going to regather his people in the land, in the millennium. And they will rule with him, as will we, says, teaches the Bible. They being the, the Jews, God's chosen, chosen people. So God makes this unconditional covenant. It's not dependent upon their faithfulness. It's dependent upon God's faithfulness. And he gives them a piece of land, and he says, I'm going to give you this land. And it hasn't happened yet. Now, I said that this is an unconditional covenant. Then that suggests that there have been conditional agreements. Has God made in Scripture covenants that are conditioned? Absolutely. That's what you read in the first five books, for most of the first five books of your Bible, after Exodus, when God gives the law to who? Moses. And when God gives the law to Moses, he gives what's called the Mosaic Covenant. You've got the Abraham's Covenant back in Genesis, unconditional, this is what I'm going to do. But then you come to Moses, book of Exodus, God gives the law, and then you have recorded the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that's what's called a conditional covenant. God says, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, you won't be blessed, you'll be cursed. 
The terms of the covenant are conditioned on what you do, on your obedience. So the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. God's going to do it. God says, I'm going to give you this land. You haven't had the land. When's that going to happen? Okay, the people of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, they're looking forward to a time when there's going to be a kingdom. Much of your Old Testament and the prophets are talking about a time when God is going to set up his kingdom. You go to the prophets like Isaiah. And you have Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 2 talking about the fact that, that, that their spears will be, uh, will be uh, made into plowshares. You all remember that from Isaiah 2? That their weapons of war will now make food. And it says in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, And men will study war no more. But when's that going to happen? When's there going to be no more war? Isaiah's looking forward to, to a kingdom. When there'll be no more war because the king is presiding over his kingdom. But something's going to happen in between. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about the kingdom, studying war no more. The lion laying with the lamb. The animal kingdom is transformed. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Edenic kind of existence. Like the garden. But something's got to happen in between. Isaiah 53. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Who's that? Well, that's this king in Isaiah 2 and in Isaiah 11. It looks like he's going to be killed. Why? Why is he going to be killed? Because, because sin has entered the equation and, and a perfect sacrifice is going to have to be given to redeem these people who are going to be the inhabitants of this kingdom that God's going to give. So Jesus comes. Move forward now in your Bible. Jesus comes. He is that fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Right? And he does die for his, his people, but he does something else. Jesus, I believe, offers the kingdom to God's people, the Jews. And they reject him. God knew they would reject him, of course. That's why he's able to prophesy that they're going to kill him. But he offered the kingdom to them. And even after they rejected his people, the Jews rejected him. And Jesus says then, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have loved to have gathered you as a mother gathers her children. But you've rejected me. And that rejection was seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Even after that's all over, Jesus raises from the dead. The apostles come to Jesus and they say, Are you going to establish the kingdom now? The apostles are still expecting this kingdom to be set up. So going back to your Old Testament, going back to Abraham, unconditional, this is what I'm going to do, moving forward, an expectation in the prophets that there will be this kingdom. Jesus comes, he offers that kingdom, it's rejected. He is killed as predicted. So now what? God starts this this new thing. You're part of this new thing. 
You're not part of the nation of Israel, are you? What, what is this new thing you're now a part of? It's called the church. It's a new thing. There was no church in the first part of your Bible. There was no church until you get to Acts chapter 2, as a matter of fact. And God is calling out a people, not just from one race of people in one nation, but the gospel is now going to go to how many nations? All nations. Make disciples of all nations. So we're part of that. We're in that. We proclaim Christ crucified, coming again to establish, in my view, his kingdom. But that raises a question. What about God's chosen people? What about the Jews? What about Israel? In just a few decades after Jesus rose from the dead, Jerusalem was destroyed, 70 A.D., the year 70 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was almost completely destroyed. The remnants of the temple, almost 2,000 years later, the, the remnants are a wall that you see on TV sometimes called the Wailing Wall. That's a wall of the temple that was destroyed back in 70 A.D. The people of God are scattered. The, the Jews are scattered, God's chosen people, scattered all over the world. For nearly 2,000 years, they don't inhabit this land that back in Genesis chapter 15, God promised to Abraham and to his descendants. 1948, 19, just 1948, there's this regathering and this thing that we call Israel now. Now, if you know your geography just a little bit, you know that Israel, as it's comprised right now, is a sliver along the Mediterranean, a sliver. When I say a sliver, I'm not, there are points at which it's like 10 miles wide. It's a sliver. That's why it cracks me up when they have these negotiations and they say they're going to negotiate land for peace. Israel's going to give up land so that we can have peace. Dude, you don't have much land to give up. But nonetheless, it's a sliver. It's not to the Euphrates. It's not to the Nile. It's a sliver. So even the 1948 thing is, is not what God promised to Abraham. So now what? you got the church, but what happens with Israel? What happens with the Jews? And Paul addressed that question in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Take a look at Romans chapter 11. So, what about the the Jews then? We've got the church now. And so what happens with God's chosen people? The Jews. Look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. Now let me just stop there. Who might become conceited? Well, it's these non-Jews who say, we've taken over. God's done with... Israel. Well, I don't want you to be I don't want you to be conceited about that. I want you to understand, says Paul. 
Understand this mystery so that you may not be conceited, colon, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until. Those are really important words. Israel right now, God's chosen people, is experiencing a hardening in part, but not forever, until. As we'll read on, we're going to see that the God who predicted all of these things for his chosen people and that nation and that land is in the future going to return his attention to those people and that land. But for now, there's a hardening, experiencing a hardening. They've rejected Christ. Do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. A hardening in part, but until when? The full number of Gentiles has come in. And so, verse 26, still all Israel will be saved. And when the full number of Gentiles has come in, that would be people like us, that God is calling from all nations. When that is completed, God will return his attention to this nation to whom he made these promises, and all Israel at that time will be saved. Verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Here's why. God's gift and his call are irrevocable. God's gift and calling are irrevocable. That is, if I, God, say this is going to happen, it cannot be revoked. So it's still going to happen. And the reason I say, then, it's a, it's a pretty big deal is because it gets to the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. If that does not happen, then what does it say about God and his promises and his sovereignty, his ability to control his world, to bring about precisely what he has said is going to happen? And God says, all Israel will be saved. What I have elected and chosen for them cannot be obligated, cannot be reversed. It is irrevocable. I have elected them. I have chosen them. This is going to happen. It hasn't happened. When's it going to happen? I believe it's going to happen in the millennium. And I believe Jesus is going to come to set it up. Now, if you don't believe that, then it gets a little squirrely, I think. If you don't believe that's going to happen, then here's what starts to occur in your thinking. And this is what many of our friends, and I say friends, brothers and sisters, people will be in heaven with. But this is what a number of them believe. That all that stuff in the Old Testament where God promised a land to Israel and them to be revived as a nation and restored as a people and all of that, all of that stuff is now done away and has been taken over by, does anybody know by whom? By the church. By us. You go, really? I've always wanted a trip to the Holy Land. I mean, <laughs> this is part of the deal. I didn't know that. But no. The land thing is not a real land thing. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to be unkind. It's not physical land. Now that has been taken over by the church, and it is now a symbol for the church's progress throughout the world. 
It's not a, those promises were made to Israel, but they're no, they no longer obtain. Why? Because Israel rejected this. Now, let me just ask you before I move on. Was this promise dependent on what Israel does? God said, I'm going to do this, right? It's unconditional. That's important. But the answer is no, they lost it. And God has now given it to the church. You say, okay, what practical difference is that going to make? Well, one, it gets to the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God, which I consider to be a pretty big deal. But then it starts to affect you in other squirrely ways. I'll mention one or two, and then we've run out of time. But if you believe that the church has now taken over symbolically the things that were promised to Israel, here's some things that you might do. You might baptize babies. You go, really, there's a connection <laughs> between that and baptizing babies? Well, Israel, if you believe the church is now the new Israel, that's what that's what's called. The church is the new Israel. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, as 1 Peter 2 says. So that means we've taken over for Israel. That's the way they interpret that. Wrongly, I believe. Well, if you believe that, that we're the new Israel, didn't Israel have a way of initiating people into the covenant community? Didn't they? They circumcised, right? Now, you guys are chuckling. That is, that is absolutely... That is absolutely the basis upon which our friends say we should baptize infants and initiate them into the covenant community. But it all goes back to seeing us as superseding Israel. They circumcised, we baptize infants. You say no. Any of you guys know the name R.C. Sproul? R.C. Sproul is a terrific teacher. great teacher. Got a bunch of his books. I've gone to seminars to hear him. He's on the radio. He is really a terrific teacher. Brother in the Lord. Can't wait to ask him how he blew this when we get to heaven. But he's he's a great guy, okay? So when I say that, see, I just want to make sure you all know, I'm not hating anybody here. I'm just saying this is the way it goes. None other than the brilliant R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul has a Bible I have on my shelf. It's called the Geneva Study Bible. And if you have a copy of the Geneva Study Bible, go and look at Genesis chapter 15 in the Geneva Study Bible. Because it, like all study Bibles, has notes in it to explain things, and it'll have a page with a half, uh, half an article or a full-page article or something like that. But if you go to Genesis chapter 15 in the Geneva Study Bible that was edited by general editor R.C. Sproul, guess what you'll find a full-page article on in there? Genesis 15. Baptism. Baptism. Now, why would you be dealing with baptism in Genesis 15? Read Genesis 15. We were in Genesis 15 a bit ago, weren't we? And God cuts this covenant with, with uh, Abram and all of that. He establishes circumcision there. But you don't find baptism anywhere in there. Nowhere. So how does R.C., our friend R.C., get an article on baptism in Genesis 15? It's because of what I'm telling you. We are now the new Israel. 
And so the reason we baptize infants is because people were to be initiated into the covenant community by circumcision. So you begin to see that this starts to filter down then into differences between us. You all know we don't baptize babies. One of the reasons we don't baptize babies is because we don't have a national identity like Israel did. This was part of their national identity. This is how you knew the racial identity, ethnic identity, part of the nation. This is how you knew that, by virtue of circumcision. We don't have that. The church doesn't have that. So people come into identity with our community by personal faith, not by being born into it. So there's nothing you can do with a child at eight days old that's going to have any effect on the covenant community here. Nothing. They have to get to a point where they can make a personal choice of faith in Christ and then be initiated into our community by virtue of being baptized. So if somebody asks me, well, how big of a deal is it if people, you know, baptize babies? My answer is going to be, do you have an hour or two for me to explain to you the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional, coming forward, and how that's all tied to your view of the church as it relates to to Israel? So we'll continue this next week, but for now, just understand that these things that at first glance appear to be no big deal, we're all saved, we're all going to heaven, R.C. Sproul's going to heaven, he's a great guy, he's a Presbyterian. I was at a conference one time, and you know, there's pe- people like me there, and there's people from all sorts of denominations, and there he is, he's Presbyterian, he's teaching, he's just wowing the audience, he's a great teacher, as I said. And he asks a question, one guy answers the question, and, and R.C. says to him, hey, that's the right answer. He goes, uh, where are you from? And what church are you from? And the guy says he's a Lutheran. And R.C. says to him, oh, the Lutherans, the Lutherans are terrific. He says there's a special hall in heaven for the Lutherans. He says, it's really small. (laughs) So I'm using R.C.'s joke on him. I love R.C. He's a Presbyterian guy. I love my Presbyterian friends. I'm pursuing a degree at a Presbyterian seminary in Philadelphia. So these are great people. They're Christian folks. But we disagree about some of these matters, and they affect larger matters. Like, how do you view baptism? Like, how do you view the trustworthiness of the promises of God? We'll pick that up next time. We may have time to get into that gifts issue next week. If not, we'll do it the following week. Okay? Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word and to consider, ponder these matters. And we thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us in your word to tell us about your purposes, both now and into the future. And Lord, help us to be willing to do the the hard work of gleaning from Scripture what you have told us. Help us to be willing to be humble when we don't understand, when we don't know, when when it's unclear. Help us to be humble when we deal with those who disagree with us on these matters. Help us, Lord, to have the discernment, the wisdom, to know what's important and what really is just a matter of a difference of opinion. Grant us to be able to see the connections between your first order, cardinal, issues of the faith, and those issues that are more tangential. And so for these next couple of weeks, we seek to do that. We want to divide your word uh, accurately, and we want to represent those with whom we disagree uh, truthfully. So help us to do that, and help us to come away then from this time with, if nothing else, more of a diligence 
to understanding your word and seeing the connections. And then understanding those connections to go forth, sometimes arm in arm with those with whom we disagree, in order to see your word move forward and your glory advanced. Help us to do that this week in our personal lives, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And bring us back safely next Sunday. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.